Welcome back to S2S Books Author Interviews. We're back for our second interview on this platform, and we're excited this morning to interview Glenn Martin uh, on this book called Righteous Lot. Um, Glenn, I have enjoyed reading this book, and I want to thank you for giving us uh, this book to read about this ancient uh, story that happened 4,000 years ago. And I think maybe a description called an, an epic drama or an epic saga <laughs> um, would be a good way to describe it. And reading your book here has helped me to understand again and see, uh, has given me a new lens to look at this story. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for it. Um, so Greg is joining uh, us here. Uh, Greg is part of the advisory uh, council uh, for um, Strength to Strength. So Greg, good to have you here as well. Greg comes to us from Pittsburgh, where he and several families are doing a church plant there. Greg enjoys um, reading the the ancient literature of the church. And um, so I asked him to, to join us here um, as we uh, interview Glenn and discuss uh, this story, this book called Righteous Lot, a historical retelling. And um, the, we had uh, Stephen Russell from Faith Builders uh, wrote the foreword for this book. And there's two things that he points out that, that Glenn has done uh, in this book. I just want to just want to highlight those. Um, he says that <clears throat> Glenn, yeah, two things Glenn has done. Uh, one of those um, is that he has uh, he has done a meticulous reading. Uh, I'm sorry. First of all, he is meticulous in reading the story and comparing one scripture to another. Uh, and he says that many of us uh, moderns, uh, we in our in our in our fast-paced world, we don't take the time to soak in scripture, specifically the Old Testament scripture. And he says that's something that he notices um, with students there at, at faith builders, that so many of them only read in the New Testament. He says the Old Testament's forgotten. And Glenn, I know that you have a deep passion that we again uh, bring the Old Testament back into focus as such an important part of understanding where we're at in God's story today and understanding the new the new covenant. Um, and so he says, that's one of your strengths. Um, and then the second strength he points out is this. Glenn's second approach is to dig into the historical record. What did others have to say about Lot's story? This is undoubtedly harder for most of us since we may not have a good idea where to find these resources or how to begin. However, digging deeply into the story of Lot and un uncovering how the ancient writers saw it gives us a better picture of this happening and also gives us an example to follow in our own research into various Bible stories. Uh, and so um, uh, he goes on to talk about more things there. And I would have to agree with that. Like um, as I as I read your book and looking at all the footnotes and many different uh, ancient writers that you're referencing, people that I, I'm, I've never read. And, and so thank you for introducing me to that. I mean, I when it comes to ancient writings, you know, I, I, I have gotten about as far as David Brousseau's Dictionary of Early Church Beliefs. And uh, um, but you're referencing, yeah, Philo and Josephus and the Antonicene Fathers and and you know Chrysostom and just these these ancient writers. And so, thank you for that introduction. Uh, maybe we'll just um, we'll just jump right in here. Uh, and and Glenn, tell us a little bit. 
why what is the what was your burden behind writing this book? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on here to talk about this. Yeah. So there's uh, a number of things um, in answering your question there. What was the burden of writing it? Uh, first of all, just the accuracy. It's um, hard after uh, learning something new to hear people giving an incorrect um, account. And so I think that's uh, one thing that has uh, kind of motivated me just to get more people on the right track as it pertains to the story here. But another thing, and I think a, a bigger a bigger reason, is um, that the lessons that are here for us are going to be forgotten or ignored or overlooked if we don't have the story straight. So just um, as an example of that, um, we know from the scripture that the record is given for, for our learning. Yeah, so the, the second thing is that we have a lot of lessons that we could learn from this story if we would have the story straight. So I think there's uh, lessons that could be uh, received from the story about discipleship, about evangelism, about intercession, maybe about conflict resolution. And uh, all these things are going to be uh, overlooked if we don't see Lot in a positive light, if we're not um, looking to him as being an example, then we won't uh, receive these uh, lessons from it. So I think uh, to to get the story straight first is important before we go to it for application. Sure. Mm -hmm. So what what do you think? Um, so as 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 you have written this. Um, you have observed maybe other like a lot of misunderstanding ar around it could you just get into that a little bit we don't want to take away your punch <laughs> we don't want to uh, in your book um, but you you really this is a burden that you have and and so could you explain a little more like like why why has what is kind of the general contemporary um of understanding i mean obviously you say uh, a historical retelling um and and it's, it's a burden of yours that that we understand this story, you know, immersed in a proper understanding of the scripture, and also augmenting that, if you will, um, with with some of the ancient writers. So, yeah, what is but what is general contemporary, you know, um, understanding of this? Sure. Yeah. So the modern uh, contemporary understanding of this is uh, probably along maybe five different points. And all of these, I believe, are pretty modern views. And I actually list these in the introduction. So just as an example, Answers in Genesis, they say that Lot must have repented later in life. I don't think there's any indication from the scripture of that, um, nor even that he needed to repent. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so others will say that God's expectations were lower at that time. And so therefore, uh, these things were not held against them and therefore he could be called righteous. There again, I don't think that's uh, justifiable because he knew certain things are wrong, like uh, homosexuality he understood was wrong and he um, you know stood up against that in the in the city. Uh, in addition, some folks will say that uh, Peter forgot about Lot's time in Sodom which is uh, really ironic because Peter is actually 
thing about righteous law in Sodom. Peter's specifying that that's where he was righteous. But some folks will say that because um, uh, God, you know, forgets our sins, therefore he even, you know, didn't remember this. However, there's there's another one, which is probably the, the most common one today, and that is that Lot was not righteous in his actions, but that he was imputed righteous by Abraham or by Christ's righteousness. And that has uh, gained a lot of traction, I think, particularly since the Reformation with uh, Luther's uh, teaching on imputed righteousness. And that is oftentimes the go-to defense that people present for Lot. But I would just say that I think all of these are in error and unnecessary. So when you think about um, Lot being righteous, I think about the the extent that I would have heard um, on that topic would be referencing him uh, in regards to homosexuality and uh, not to his general life. So uh, your book uh, promotes a view which isn't super common. Uh, most of us haven't uh, heard it in such a, a general way that you've used it. Um, how did you come to to believe that? Sure. Yeah. So um, mostly uh, because of reading uh, the ancient writings, and I remember reading at one point how um, I forget who the initial writer was that I was was looking at, and uh, he was like praising Lot, and it seems so strange to me that this would be the case. And uh, but as I explored more, I realized that you know what, this is not just some uh, oddball, some oddball idea, but this is actually the broad consensus of of history, where until fairly recent times, uh, people have viewed Lot as a righteous man. So that's uh, I found that to be very interesting. It was not expected, and nor was I looking for that, but that's the what I found. Sure, Glenn, would you mind like telling a little bit more about some of those kind of extra biblical literature that you use or the, the resources that you or the sources, you know, that you use to to uh, build this story or sure. more yeah, detailed so- and kind of get a broader understanding, um, you know, of of this account, you know, of, of Lot? Sure. Yeah. So the, the primary source is the scripture and the book actually follows the the scripture account chronologically, and then interspersing it with what others have said about this. So, you know, obviously Genesis, we have Ezekiel, we got Second Peter, we have Jude, but then outside of the scripture, and I think that's what you're asking about, uh, basically I'm looking at a, a range of roughly 800 years, uh, maybe 400 before Peter and 400 after Peter, something like that, this uh, segment of time. And uh, that would include uh, writers like um, Philo and Josephus. Josephus is a well-known and respected name. Philo is as well, um, but maybe less well-known, but also respected. Uh, going forward, you would have the Antonicene Church Fathers. Uh, that would include uh, Justin Martyr, Clement of Rome, Tertullian, Eusebius, um, and, and others as well. Chrysostom, you mentioned uh, all these are speaking very favor- favorably of, of Lot and so on. And then if we go backwards in history, prior to the time of uh, Peter, there we would have the you know, intertestamental literature. You'd have the Wisdom of Solomon, 
and Sirach, which are both part of the Apocrypha. Both of those are favorable towards Lot. And then we would also have the Book of Jubilees and uh, the Genesis Apocryphon. So the, the Book of Jubilees is something that the early church was very familiar with. It was never canonized anywhere, as far as I know, but it actually um, seems to have allusions to it in the New Testament because the early uh, Christian writers, including the biblical writers, were familiar with that text. And uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of the scope. Roughly 800 years, 400 before, 400 after Peter. Yep. So do you think that... Um... Like, how do you think Peter shaped his views of Lot? But what what motivated him to write that? Uh, do you think that uh, he was potentially reading some of the same material, or and but maybe maybe I have a question right before that, Craig. That's a great question. But just so you're talking about, you know, this literature, this ancient literature, right? Um, uh, early church fathers, and and then also some sec- second temple. Jewish literature, um, how how can you know that these are reliable? Like, this is a four thousand year old story from today, and at those time, you know, those writers were writing about an account two thousand years before. It's kind of like us writing about what happened, you know, at the time of Jesus. So, a long time. So, how how do we know they're reliable uh, at all? I think sure. would be a, a question that you know a discerning person would would want to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it uh, very quickly becomes a question of what is the strength or weaknesses of oral tradition, uh, because undoubtedly some of this is oral tradition. Uh, just as an example, Philo, in his writings, he actually gives uh, some hints that he's uh, quoting what other people have told him. So, the you know, when you think about oral tradition, you know, is it is it reliable? Is it stable? And... Uh, I would I would make the case that it can be. It isn't always because you know obviously we have you know creation and flood legends that have you know existed till fairly modern times around the world, but they they vary wildly. Like there's very um, it's impossible to to reconcile them. And um, you know as a as a child, I remember even. For myself, and I still see children doing this, where they'll play this little game called Whisper Down the Lane, and there will be a, a line of children, and one tells something to the next, to the next, to the next, and uh, it doesn't take long, and the story has like lost its way. So oral tradition, though, has some very uh, mixed outcomes, and it depends on the, the nature of the account. Um, some oral tradition only lasts a few generations, and other ones uh, can last... Um, quite reliably for centuries. And so there's a few things that factor into why that is. Uh, one of them is just the complexity of the story. And interestingly, if you have a more complex story, then the story will be more stable. Mm. And that's because if you have a, a very complex and intertwined story, um, you, you kind of need to keep the details straight because if you start messing up on something, other pieces no longer uh, fit together. And this story uh, actually has a lot of interconnectedness and I think has helped to to keep it much more stable. Another thing is uh, just because there is a written and authoritative horror story, uh, of course we have Genesis, 
And so these same writers that have an oral tradition also have the written tradition from Genesis. And uh, so there needs to be this congruency. So unlike the other legends that I have mentioned, when we're talking about this story and uh, uh, the traditions that have come out of this, it's unbelievable how united the story is. Like over all these centuries, roughly eight centuries that I'm covering, there's almost no discrepancies. It's uh, extremely uh, congruent and extremely, um, yeah, congruent with each other, but also with the with the biblical record, with uh, Genesis and Ezekiel and Second Peter and Jude, and it's like it all it all just fits together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sure. you know, there's things we know and there's things we don't know, and some of the things we don't know is what we would like to know. Like, how did they know some of these things, and how was this transmitted? I don't know, um, but I'm pretty confident that when we have a story that so closely um, is uh, congruent with the biblical record and so stable for so long, and then being quoted by by Peter, things that are not recorded in Genesis, this gets now to Greg's question. Sure, yeah, yeah, well, th- well thank um, And maybe, maybe just... Maybe just a little bit. Um, of, I want to just add to a little bit this idea of oral tradition, which has been totally totally lost to to the West, and and really to any any group where literacy is high. And now we you know we have access to books and technology and record. Uh, I mean, the idea of passing something along orally isn't that common. But I think every family has stories, right? Lena, you know, their their father told them about that. You know, their father. You know, there's these stories that get passed along down through, um, but you know there is these. You know, the oral, oral tradition was was is, is thousands of years old, right? I mean, that, and and they get really good. And there's people, you know, who are actually designated within a language group or a people group or a tribe, you know, as the storytellers, and they they memorize the stories and they they tell them, they retell them to the group, and and they get gets passed on, and it and and, and it is amazing. Um, uh, how accurately they do this. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Greg, did you have any more questions here about some of these ancient writings? And, and, then, and, then, and then specifically your question. So you can feel free to word it. And thank you for letting me hop in and 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 make uh, make Glenn Day a little more there. And maybe you were heading that direction. I'm sorry. Maybe you were kind of coming around to that because I know that you care. You, you, um, you've, you've thought about these things more than I have. So go ahead. No, not at all. Not at all. I like the flow of the conversation here. Um, yeah, I just I find it interesting that Peter is that uh, right in the middle there of the uh, sources that you've been drawing on, Glenn. And uh, yeah, I think it, it seems quite reasonable that Peter probably would have been influenced somewhat by this. And I'm just curious, like, uh, if you put yourself in uh, Peter's shoes and evaluate uh, the voice today. Um, how, how do you think, uh, I mean, he was obviously, he had probably heard from, from to some degree, from some of the people you've, you've cited, um, and comparing that to what we're hearing, the voices we're hearing, how do you think this would have, uh, met Peter's ears? How would he have, um, parted this out? Sure. Yeah. So if Peter only had Genesis, then I don't think that he could have said some of the things that he said. Uh, if he only had Genesis, then it's a little strange that he would say that Lot was righteous in Sodom, because not that Genesis says otherwise, but just that Genesis doesn't give commentary on 
on the morality of of Lot. It says what happened. It gives a storyline. It tells the events, but it doesn't say if it was good or if it was bad. And then that's answered by by Peter. But how did Peter know that? I think that it's uh, quite likely that yes, he was familiar with these other texts, and um, and that this would be an example of that. The other thing is uh, just the fact that Peter says that um, that Lot's soul was vexed or tormented by what was happening uh, there in, in Sodom. And that's also borne out in in the ancient text prior to Peter. And I think Peter is simply recounting these things. And uh, and while we might call it oral tradition and almost uh, question that, uh, Peter considered it to be history. So I find that uh, interesting. So you're not necessarily using this in a way to... Uh, you're not uh, voicing this as an authority more as a, uh, that, that is the second temp- temple literature. You're not uh, using it as an authority so much as a commentary to uh, to what we have and know it's authority. Yeah, so authority, I think, comes in multiple levels. And I certainly wouldn't view it as an authority to the level of canonicity. You know, I'm not taking any of this to be, to be canon. Uh, but what I am thinking is that it seems uh, quite remarkable that Peter would quote from some of these sources, considering it to be history, and what he uh, states there, you know, becomes part of the part of the canon. I think that's uh, quite interesting, and uh, gives a lot of uh, strength to to the to the value, if you will, of those ancient texts. Yeah, with well, Glenn, I think that um, you know you you really dig in the scripture, and, and that's that's beautiful. Um, as and that's that's your that's your source of authority, and then you're you're adding in these other ancient writers um, to kind of help fill that story out. And like you said, um, there's this there's this harmony uh, across hundreds of years around this 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 literature. Um, so let's 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 move it. Let's move in. Just dig into the story of Lot a little bit here. We don't want to steal your thunder uh, in the book and some of the some all these different accounts, um, but there's obviously some pretty glaring accounts. Um, and uh, and I think that you at the beginning of the book you had this great quote. You say a bad interpretation can lead to a miscarriage of justice, with the innocent being convicted and the guilty set free. And that's a sobering that's a sobering quote. And then you also begin with this great story, um, and you have to read it. I'm sorry, uh, viewers, you're gonna have to, I'm not going to give it away, but you, you're going to have to read it um, to uh, read, get the book uh, to to read that story. But anyhow, let's let, let, let's go ahead and dig into the account uh, of Lot a little bit. So maybe one of the the uh, quote glaring things that I think of as I think of Lot is what. I was kind of raised to think of, or even in the text, kind of stands out as Lot was materialistic. Okay, Lot had his heart towards the city, towards wicked, towards evil, and so we have that that whole issue there of uh, between Abraham and Lot, you know, and and their wealth and and which it, the, the story of them being in Egypt, um, you know, just fascinating uh, accounts of them being. I, there was there's just so many parts of the story that. I just, you know, with, 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 you know, the ancient writers kind of fill in, um, that I guess was just legend passed down through, you know, that 
it, it really makes it colorful. It, it takes it from a story that's very interesting to a story super interesting. <laughs> um, you know, just incredible. Yeah, so they were in Egypt. Yeah, they, got, they, they got kicked out of Egypt back into, you know, into the Palestine there, the promised land, uh, if you will. And, you know, and, they're, and they're, they had this huge herd and all this wealth and, and there's this conflict. And and so Abraham, you know, goes about to to do this beautiful conflict re resolution, right? Um, and uh, and then Lot, you know, chooses the uh, the the good land, and Abraham gets the bad land. Um, and is is that a right understanding of that situation? Yeah, so it's definitely a very common uh, perception that um, when the choice of lands was there. So just uh, setting the context, uh, we know that the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham, Abram at that time were in conflict and uh, so rather than having this escalate uh, it was uh, Abram that made the offer he's like well why don't you go somewhere else and um, you make the choice you choose where to go and I'll take um, what's remaining and so what comes out of that quite commonly is that people will say that Lot chose the the better land and um, it, it's definitely true that he looked towards the the land in the area of Sodom, he saw it was well watered, and he he chose that land. But it would be incorrect to say that he landed up with better territory. Now uh, that's that's not correct. In fact, Abram, as we know uh, from Scripture, he was in the promised land. God had said, "I'm going to take you to the to the promised land," and that's that's where he was. Uh, in fact, in Ezekiel, it says that God had spied out that land for him, and um, in yeah, Ezekiel calls it the glory of all lands, uh, which, you know, that, that's not possible that Lot had the best land if, in fact, um, the scripture is true that the land where Abram was was the glory of all lands. And um, Septuagint, it says, was a land that was more abundant than any other land. Um, in fact, um, Abram was living by uh, this in this place called Mamre, that's the same place where the grapes of Eshkol came from later. Uh, when the Canaanite conquest was and the spies were sent in, they got all these grapes. That comes from the place where Abram was, not where Lot was. And then, of course, after Lot separated, uh, God told Abram that this is your land. He's like, look north and south and east and west. Everything that you see is, is your land. And there's many, many mentions of this in the scripture that this is the land that was flowing with milk and honey. So we may say that uh, Lot chose a good land, but we can't say he chose the the better land. And uh, we don't need to look at any extra biblical resources to to see that. I think there, though, you, you do have a general acknowledgement, and, and this actually comes from some ancient writers, and that there was a shift at one point, though, for Lot. Um, and... And again, you, I don't think you find this in the biblical text, like actually said. Um, but what 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 is that shift uh, as the ancient writers point out? Mm -hmm. Yep. So if we uh, consider the ancient writers, it would uh, illustrate that Abram was discipling Lot uh, through the time in Egypt, following that time after they returned to to the land, uh, the promised land, that uh, Lot was a disciple to Abram. 
But then after this conflict with the shepherds, uh, Lot was pretty disgruntled about that. And then they separated. He may have thought he's choosing the better land. And I think he could have given deference to, to Abram in that. However, after he arrived there in the plains near Lot, it was actually very soon, it was in the same year, after they left Egypt, and uh, arrived back in the promised land, and then he separated and he went to Lot. That all happened within, he went to the, uh, the plains near Sodom. That all happened in about a year span. But also within that same period of time is when the captivity happened. And uh, these uh, kings from the north came and conquered Sodom and the other cities. And then Lot was taken away uh, with them uh, in captivity. Then Abram. Uh, went and rescued Lot. And so different ones of the ancient writers uh, would illustrate that after Abram rescued Lot, that he became a changed man. And I think he saw that some of the injustices that he had done against Abram were uh, only repaid with good from Abram. And uh, so I think it's a remarkable story of victorious discipleship making. Like, um, he, he made a disciple and, and all of this was, um, prior to the events that happened in Sodom and after, after the captivity and the rescue by Abram, there's no more bad to be said about Lot. There's some things prior to that. I think as Abram was trying to teach him in, in the ways of God, but after the captivity and rescue, um, I think Lot was a changed man. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's some amazing detail there. Um, I think that a lot of the uh, potential readers are going to uh, be drawn towards several of these high po- or these high points or low points, whatever, however we might understand that, of Lot's life. I know when you first told me about uh, this book you were writing and the subject matter, um, I... When I first got it in my hands, I wanted to just go move, uh, jump forward into the the, uh, the mid part of the book to get some of this detail because yeah. there's certain aspects of Lot's life that just seem very indefensible. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps, perhaps one of the larger ones of those would be um, where he offered his daughters to the men in Sodom. Um, how, how do you, could, could you give us a bit of a snapshot um, on how you deal with, uh, with this issue? Sure. But hanger, well, I, can, I can try to. But hanger, you you got to read the book. You can't explain it, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's actually true. There's there's a lot of uh, detail here, and I'll try to give um, an overview. Uh, context is is everything, and uh, if you're unconvinced by by what I say here, that's very understandable. Um, you'll need to yeah, that's true. You'll need to read the book. So that's my plug here, but. Um, <laughs> But nonetheless, uh, there, there is more context uh, to what's what's going on here. And uh, in in short, I would say that, yes, it's true that Lot made that statement, but it wasn't understood to mean what we read that to mean. So let me just uh, explain that a little bit. So I think um, what you're referring to is what's uh, given in Genesis 19, verse 8, where the men of the city are surrounding Lot's house. And uh, at that time, they're demanding access to the angels. And then Lot said to the men surrounding the house, he said, I have two daughters 
who have not known a man, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the protection of my roof. So if um, if that means that he is offering them, if this is a genuine offer of exchange, that would be evil. And uh, I, I think that this is kind of the the lightning rod point, you know, that everyone uh, looks at because there's no way to to justify this. And uh, but what we need to say is that Peter, in his commentary, is talking about Lot's time in Sodom. And it needs to include this event. So different commentators have looked at this, uh, even in modern times, and say that like this is not something that God ever would have justified. We can't explain this just by saying, um, you know, this is prior to the law and things like that. Like you can't, you can't get away from that. So just to set the context a little bit, uh, let me jump ahead the response of these people after Lot made that offer, and I would put that word in quotes, the people responded by saying, why are you judging us? And I think that's a hint that there's something else going on. Uh, When he said that, let me just um, read, maybe I'll just read a little piece here from my book. Just uh, locate this. The Lot's virgin daughters were already betrothed to his sons-in-law, who were men's men who were sorry, who were men of Sodom. Therefore, these daughters were no longer his to give away in the first place. No doubt, the men of Sodom knew this, and so of course, the offer in quotes could not be legitimate. It would be a violation of these daughters, and that would be a violation of Sodom's own young men. Keeping this in mind, you can better realize what's transpiring here. Lot is asking rhetorically, in effect. Would you allow this treatment to be done to your own people? Of course they would not. So Lot's rationale is, if you have the humanity to not allow this to be done to your own, why would we not extend that courtesy to the strangers who have come under the shadow of my roof? This dynamic may not be immediately obvious to our modern ears, but it was clearly understood by the mob. Just look at their response. After Lot's offer, in quotes, they respond furiously saying, stop judging us. Really? Why did they say that? Because they understood Lot's words were not an offer at all, but a moral appeal to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes a lot more sense of the story to see why they responded in that way. So another thing that follows is that after they said, why are you judging us? They turned their anger on, on Lot. Like, why were they angry at him for making an offer of giving these daughters to to these depraved men. You know, like, if anything, they should have said, like, okay, now Lot's uh, beginning to, you know, see things are away, or, you know, he's giving in to us, or or something like that. But instead, they turned their anger on him, and they said, we're going to do worse to you than we were going to do to them, which I think is essentially a death threat. Like, that wouldn't be... It, it doesn't make sense to have that kind of a response when he is saying, okay, you can have my daughter's it doesn't make sense. So mm-hmm. that being said, um, this is also understood by by many people in the past. Uh, our generation doesn't see this anymore, unfortunately. 
But um, yeah, I think it was, uh, let me just actually locate this, uh, a few quotes of other people. Josephus says that uh, by, by making this offer, in quotes, that the men of Sodom were not even made ashamed by this. Like he he understood that they were supposed to feel shame by by this so-called offer. And I think it was just uh, locate another quote here. Chris Austin um, appears a little conflicted on this, but he he calls it an apparent offer. And so and, and there's a lot more that I could look at, but only to say that there's there's more going on. And uh, to just assume that Lot is making a genuine offer, I think once you get the greater context, it would be uh, disingenuous to, to see that. Yeah, sure. that's that's amazing. I've, uh, I've I was impressed with uh, reading your book and uh, considering the example of Lot, like how many uh, New Testament qualities he actually exemplified in his day, and that's obviously what you just got on telling us is. Uh, makes us think of the words of Jesus and how he's asked us to uh, appeal to the conscience of evil men by doing good to them. And uh, I'm not sure this is exactly the same thing. It might have slight slight variations, but we certainly see uh, some aspects of uh, Jesus' values exemplified by by a lot there in that story. Right. Sure. And so we've, we've kind of looked at maybe two lowlights here. Um. But one of the things I was so inspired by is some of the highlights. I mean, there's just so much to this story. It's rich. Mm-hmm. It, it is rich. You know, it's stuck right in the middle of Genesis. You know, so many things happened before. Of course, so many things happened after. Um, and and, and it, um, But you mentioned at the beginning, you know, of things we can learn from it. And one of the, I think you mentioned hospitality, mm-hmm. which just shines uh, through this book not only in the biblical text, but also these ancient writers highlighting this and even uh, helping us see that that this was a lifestyle of Abraham from the beginning. And like and and also and he used he used hospitality to evangelize, mm-hmm. um, to make people aware of this one God, of Yahweh. It's amazing. Um and um and, and of course, if anyone spends any time with me, they they know that I, I I believe that deeply that at the heart of Christianity, uh, the way the kingdom gets advanced is through hospitality, which is in the Greek word is philiazina. It's love. Uh, the the, uh, the the you know obviously there's different like in, in the Greek there's like five different words for love I believe, but it's this idea of of to love as a brother, right? to love as a brother, strangers, um, and 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 you see this just being exemplified in Abraham, and then in 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 the one who's following him in Lot, and and just the ancient writers really draw that out the context there, which they would have understood a lot better than us. Mm. You know what was all going on. Uh, even uh, the world hadn't changed a lot from you know over that two thousand year period. Um, as much as it has in the last two thousand years, right? And, and so it was in the Middle East. They, they understood something. They understood the context so much better than us, and they just draw that out. And it's so inspiring. And I think it's just a, it's so uh, such a uh, challenge and inspiration to us moderns 
um, to go back to these ancient ways, you know, and and to just embrace uh, this love of stranger. And and as he writer says, sometimes we entertain uh, strangers unawares. And so I believe that's what happens today. Um, so yeah, there's there's just so much here. Uh, we need to we need to move towards a wrap up here. Um, but Greg, was there any other questions that that you wanted to dig into here at all, or um, I don't want to close this down too too quickly. Um, yeah, I was wondering. So uh, briefly, is there any other areas that uh, you would draw from Lot's life that are uh, a positive example for us today? That point towards the kingdom of God as we understand it. Great. So it's a good, good question. So I think there's a lot of different examples that we could learn from him if we if we would if we would see him as being a positive example. Uh, one thing is you know about how to live uncorrupted in the world, uh, separation from the world, if you will, and. Um, you know exactly how that's all done i think is um you know a, a, a huge topic but nonetheless uh, here we have a willingness of of this pan with his family to to live among the among the evil people and um it's very interesting how god did not forget him there in fact um jesus and jude and peter they all see this as an example of of the end of the world and of the judgment and in, in doing so we are actually like lot living in this evil world so lot being a salt to the earth or being a salt to sodom if you will is exactly what we're supposed to be in this in this world and um so yeah you know as much as we might uh, have this presupposition that lot was a, a bad man we don't want to have anything to uh, anything to do with him the reality is that Jesus sees Lot as being an example of who his followers are to be uh, as somebody living righteously in a wicked world, which is uh, quite quite a quite a contrast to the popular telling. Amazing. Yeah, well, and maybe what I'll we'll wrap this up with a with a letter. From an Anabaptist, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name, um, but you wrap your book up um, with this letter by this dear brother who's in prison, uh, and it's a letter to his wife to be faithful, and it goes like this: Let us by no means love this world, nor be conformed to it, nor again lust for this wicked world, to run with it to the same excess of riot, lest we perish with it. But let us constantly go on in the true way of truth, in the newness of life, to serve the living God all the days of our lives without looking back to Sodom. And let us always well heed and do what the Holy Scriptures teach and admonish us to, so that we may in eternity rejoice with God, our Heavenly Father, and with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Amen. So thank you, Brother Glenn, for uh, giving us this treasure trove. Um, I really have been impacted by it, um, blessed by it, inspired by it, and I'm certain it's going to inspire many, many others. You know, it's this is a, it's definitely a def different genre of book than Hector's book. <laughs> for sure. 
Um, and uh, which, but it's 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 so good because it's tying us in deep into scripture, deep into the biblical story, and, and through it we get to see Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you and and it's very a Christocentric book um, as well. And uh, and then also you're you're helping us understand these ancient writers and tying us into places that we can go. Uh, to to do more more of this reading, uh, introducing us to people that we haven't, I, I you know, it was new new to me. So uh, again, thank you for for this. And for our listeners here, um, you can go to our website strengththestrength.org uh, to order this book. Um, we are getting them out also into other bookstores as well. Um, for those listeners who don't have access to the internet, you can either email us at contact at strengththestrength.org, or you can even fax us at 413-255-0262. And, um, you know, our vision here, our burden here at Strength to Strength is that we would provide resources that would strengthen your love, faith, relationship with King Jesus and give you solid footing in a shaky world. So again, Thank you for listening, Greg. Thank you for joining us here uh, on this interview um, as well. May God bless you. Grace and peace. (laughs) 